If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What exactly made King Alfred great? Did he really burn any cakes? And why should we care about documents that record early medieval land transactions? Dr Robert Gallagher has been studying the Welsh churchman Asser, who wrote a biography of Alfred, The Life of King Alfred. He spoke to our content director, David Musgrove, about his findings. If after listening to this podcast, you want to learn more about the early medieval period, this week is Vikings Week on our website, historyextra.com. We've got plenty more material there, including articles on Harold Hardrada, the Dane Law and Viking funerals. You can find all of that at historyextra.com forward slash Vikings. Today, I am joined by Dr. Robert Gallagher, who is lecturer in early medieval history at the University of Kent, uh, where he works in the Centre for Medieval and Early Modern Studies. Um, He's written an interesting article in the English Historical Review. Uh, entitled Asser and the Writing of West Saxon Charters. So we are going to talk about Asser and King Alfred. Uh, now, for, for listeners who haven't heard of Asser, um, he uh, he wrote uh, The Life of King Alfred, King Alfred the Great, the famous 
uh, West Saxon, early English king who reigned in the ninth century. So we're going to talk a bit about Asa and we're going to talk a little bit about King Alfred as well, no doubt. So Rob, um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Hi, um, yeah, I'm good. Thank you very, uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, so first up, uh, who was Asa? Um, what do we actually know about him? Okay, so Asa was a, uh, a ninth century Welsh uh, member of the church. Um, he was alive in the second half of the ninth century in the very early 10th century. Um, and the reason that he is um, well known to uh, historians and so historically significant be- is because, as you said, he wrote The Life of King Alfred, um, which is the earliest surviving biography we have of an English king. Um, most of what we know about Asa comes from the information that he tells us in the in that text, in the life of King Alfred. Um, and we know that he grew up uh, and was educated at St. David's in southwest Wales. And later on, um, probably after he'd written the life of King Alfred, because he doesn't mention it, um, he becomes the Bishop of Sherborne, which is a West Saxon bishopric uh, in, in the southwest of England. Right. And then the the actual life of King Alfred itself, this document, can you briefly introduce us to that? What what are its key points and what's its sort of general style and approach? And I suppose, importantly, what language was it written in style? Yeah, so the the life of King Alfred, I mean, it's an an extraordinary text. It's very unique um, in many ways. It is a biography of the West Saxon King Alfred, uh, who become, who is later known as Alfred the Great, Alfred himself was king of the West Saxons from 871 to 899. And remarkably, this biography of him was written while he was still alive. It tells us a huge amount about Alfred as a person. We get a real sense of him as an individual. Um, But it also tells us uh, an enormous amount about the political, social and cultural developments of the time. Um, In terms of the structure, it starts off by, it addresses Alfred himself, and then it tells us about his ancestry, and then it moves on to his childhood. Uh, In terms of the content, it then switches uh, to a focus on Viking attacks and the military activity that's taking place in uh, the mid to late 9th century in Britain. Um, But then it later gives us more information about Alfred as a person um, and as a ruler, Um, So we get a real sense of him as someone who is very keen on education and learning. He's very concerned for his own uh, own spiritual well-being as well as his subjects. Um, And we're also told um, information about how he governed his kingdom, um, which in many ways seems to be pretty exceptional in terms of what he was doing. But in terms of the text, that's, that's the structure. And in terms of language, it was written in Latin. This was a text, as I said, written by uh, someone from Wales, who uh, it's highly likely, though we don't know for certain, that uh, Asser's native language would have been Welsh, uh, so not Old English, the the language of uh, King Alfred himself. Um, So in that multilingual context, uh, this, this text was written in Latin. And just that, that moves us on to this the question of what languages would have been spoken in Alfred's courts. As you said, you've got um, a, a Welshman, Asa, um, uh, who uh, would have grown up speaking a different language, a completely different language to Old English. Mm. But then he's writing in Latin, the Latin language of the of the church. So do, c- can we imagine like a court where numerous languages are being used and spoken? 
Uh, definitely. Um, I mean, I think the, 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 la- the dominant language certainly would have been Old English, which is the ancestor language of the language that we're speaking right now, because that was the language that was the, the vernacular, the primary vernacular of the West Saxons, so Alfred's kingdom, but also the Mercians and the, um, the people of Kent and other areas that King Alfred also had political dominion over. But there would have been other people at his court uh, who... Uh, were speaking different languages, and certainly um, Old English wouldn't have been their first language. So Asa is a is a clear example of this, of someone who was um, uh, from a Celtic-speaking region. We know also that there were people from Francia, from both East and West Francia at Alfred's court, so speaking um, Romance and Germanic languages. We know that there were also people from Ireland who visited, um, as well as people from Scandinavia. Um, so definitely this was this is a space that was multilingual at various points in time. And as you said, Latin was the uh the language of the church um to an extent, but it was also the the lingua franca. It was the language that most people, regardless of where they had come from um in Western Europe, would have had some exposure to. Do we know whether King Halfred himself understood Latin? If we believe Asa, uh, yes, um, he almost miraculously attains Latin literacy pretty much overnight. I think that we should probably take, when, we, when Asa tells us things about the king, I think we need to take everything uh, not at face value, to put it. He's certainly aiming to create an impression of an idealised king to some extent. We don't know for certain his his levels of Latin literacy, but it is claimed that Alfred personally translated several texts from Latin into Old English. There is the big question of how much personal involvement he actually had in these translation programs or whether he put his name was put on top of these translations once they were complete. Um, so we don't know for certain, but my sense is that the his concern with education and learning, I sense a sort of an authenticity to it. So I can imagine that, yes, he was interested in learning the language, the language of scripture. Um, So I can imagine that, yes, certainly he would have, I think he did probably learn some Latin, um, but we, I don't, I think it's fair to say he wouldn't have been able to speak it fluently. He was supposed to have been bookish, wasn't he, Alfred? And and you have yeah. the um you have that the, the fantastic artifacts, the ace stalls, these little uh, the, the Alfred jewels, which uh, were they they were supposed to be bookmarks or something like that, weren't they? We don't know for certain. We don't know for certain. So yeah, the, these these astals that are referred to um, in 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 a different text uh, from Alfred's reign uh, that he sends out these astals to people uh, within his kingdom that are associated with the promotion of learning. So it's thought that these were some sort of jeweled items uh, that you might have a, a pointer on that you, you use to guide reading. And as you said, the most famous example of that is this so-called Alfred Jewel, which is in the Ashmolean Museum in, in Oxford. It certainly fits the, uh, the story and the impression that we get of Alfred as someone who is seeking education not only for himself but for his subjects and he seems to be a ruler who is very concerned not only with the the, the physical safety of his subjects in terms of fighting off viking attacks but also their spiritual safety and well-being and it seems to be very much tied up with that 
Um, every, every, listeners should check out that uh, the Alfred Jewel. I'm sure it'll be on the Ashmolean website. So it's a beautiful artifact. Yeah, it's um, amazing. It's, it's definitely on the website. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, we, we've gone off track a bit. Um, I was uh, you, you mentioned something earlier um, in your first answer that, you, that we think the life of King Alfred was written at the time of Alfred's reign. How, yeah. How do, how do we know that? Um, so there is a reference within the text that suggests that. Asser was writing in the year 893. Um, that doesn't mean that he began or completed this text during that year, but it provides a, a point of, during which he was in the process of writing this. Um, but there have been question marks about the authenticity over this text for uh, ever since the 19th century onwards. Um, I should say that the, I, the vast majority of people do accept it as authentic, but every now and again, this conversation re-emerges. And the reason for that, the reason that there is space for this, this question mark over its authenticity is because we don't have a late 9th century copy of this text. The only known medieval copy of it uh, was produced around the year 1000, and it was destroyed in a fire in the 18th century. Um, so the only reason that this text has survived is because of later copying. And because we have that, therefore, that chronological gap, that disjuncture between the writing of it and its preservation, um, rightly so, we need to think about, well, is this actually uh, what it claims to be? Um, it, it wasn't just any fire that was destroyed, him, was it? It was the, no. it was the, <laughs> cotton, the cotton library fire, um, which was the, the you know the, the the terrible bonfire of, of manuscripts. It was the one where yes, the exactly. The Beowulf manuscript got singed, wasn't it? Yeah, for any any person who works on early medieval Britain, the the deeply traumatic fire um, of um, of yes, exactly of, of the cotton fire. Um, so it's it's it, it was one of several victims um, in terms of manuscripts that that were destroyed, unfortunately. Um, at that time. So do we know um, why Asser wrote this? I mean, one can imagine that if he was at the course of King Alfred, he wrote it to, to uh, celebrate, uh, celebrate the monarch. But is it as simple as that? Um, it's a really good question. Um, why did he write this? Um, I mean, I guess that in thinking about the motives behind it, we several approaches we might take. We might think about what were the models that may have inspired Asser? Uh, what other what other texts existed that Asser seemed to have been written and and inspired by? Might that give us a hint um, of his motivations? Um, in that regard, um, we know that amongst the, the literature that that Asser was familiar with was Einhard's Life of Charlemagne, which was an earlier biography of the Frankish uh, Emperor Charlemagne. So in some, one of the motivations may well be wanting to emulate the Carolingian uh, esteem associated with, with Charlemagne. Beyond that, thinking more about the immediate political context to Asa writing, thinking about who he might have been writing for, who was the primary audience to this, for this. Yes, he addresses, uh, right at the beginning of it, he addresses Alfred. And I think we should imagine that he wrote this with the expectation that Alfred may, may read what he's saying about him. But it's widely understood by researchers that also that Asa probably was also writing, at least in part, for a Welsh audience. The reason that, that this, is, this has been suggested on numerous occasions is because of the way that he describes what's going on in the text, um, particularly geographic locations. Um, it's really interesting that he does this because there seems to be 
an appreciation that his audience might not necessarily know where he's talking about in other parts of Britain. And so on several occasions, he provides the place name in multiple languages. He's not entirely consistent about this, but there are instances where we get the place name in Old English. We also get it in Welsh as well as in Latin. In that regard, thinking about well, what's going on in Wales at this point in time, why might there be a, a Welsh audience for this? As Asa tells us, from the 880s onwards, the kingdoms within Wales, uh, the majority of them had recognised Alfred as an overlord of some regard. It's not quite clear the nature in reality of that political situation. So one way of reading it, therefore, in terms of motivation and audience is that this is this text is an act, act of persuasion to persuade people that, yeah, Alfred's, Alfred's a good ruler. We should, we should be on board with this political situation. Do we know anything about the relationship between Asser and Alfred? Is that, does he talk about that at all in his, uh, in his manuscript? He does. Um, quite un- unusually so when you look at like, like, um, early, uh, other early medieval biographies that um, Asser plays a particularly prominent role within his own narrative. There's a scene in particular that is surprisingly sort of intimate in insight into their working relationship. We're told about how Asser is reading uh, texts aloud to Alfred in his royal chamber and how he's, uh, the king asks him to copy out texts for him that he's particularly inspired by. So much of our impression of their relationship comes from the life. But we do know from external evidence, there, there is other evidence for their relationship, primarily from a text called the Old English Pastoral Care, which is one of those texts that I mentioned earlier that was translated from Latin into Old English, and that's attributed to King Alfred. And that text has been transmitted with a couple of different prefaces, one in prose and one in verse. And the prose one um, is particularly famous because it speaks from Alfred's own voice, and he mentions how he, he talks about how he personally translated this with the help of various people. And he name checks Asa as one of those people who helped him translate this text from Latin into Old English. OK, so just thinking a little bit about uh, how important this document is, as we talked about, you know, we don't have the surviving copies. And so we're going on uh, on, on later copies of it, annotated editions and, and the like. But... If we hadn't got any record of this life at all, how much would we know about Alfred and his life? Would our, would our knowledge of the king be much reduced? Yes, it, we would know less for certain, um, not just about Alfred, but also the contemporary political situation. I should say that, I mean, Alfred's, Alfred's reign in terms of the text that it produced um, is exceptional, not just for the production of this biography of the king. We also have those translations, which provide us with external evidence that seems to confirm that, yes, this was a king who was very concerned with learning, literacy, and education in his reign. So even without the life, I would say that um, Alfred's reign would be extraordinary. Um, On top of that, he's only one of two pre-conquest English kings for whom we have a surviving will. He's exceptional in many different ways, but certainly uh, the life of King Alfred sits at the heart of why his reign is, is so exceptional and so fascinating to study. Because unlike those other texts that survive from his reign, it's that narrative, it's that anecdotal insights that we get from it that are so unique. 
that we get a much stronger sense of Alfred as a person, but also in terms of the information it gives us about what's going on in in, uh, in Wales um, and that poli- specifically that political relationship between the West Saxons and uh, the Welsh kingdoms, particularly the southern Welsh, Welsh kingdoms. We would know very little about that otherwise. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Medieval Latin literature is a deeply international body of literature. I mean, particularly from England in the in the 10th and 11th centuries, the majority of, of known Latin authors who were writing at that point in time had not been born in England. This is a very international world. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And, and, and just talking about what, what it tells us and, and what we can learn from it, then what, what sort of commonly held views about Alfred are down to Asser's life? I think uh, the life has probably had a very big impact on why Alfred ended up being called the Great. And this isn't a, a, an epithet that he is given during his lifetime. It's much later. Um, I believe it's the 16th century when the first surviving uh, examples um, of, of it uh, are from. Why, I mean, why is he great? Uh, we can talk about his military successes against Viking forces which are documented by Asa, but also by other contemporary material, particularly the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. It's the cultural side of things, the educational, the spiritual concerns of the king that really come to the fore, I think, particularly prominently within the life of King Alfred, that we probably wouldn't have as clear a sense of without it. Um, it's probably also worth acknowledging 
those things that are popularly associated with Alfred that aren't mentioned by Asser. Um, and the one thing I suppose to flag here is that, um, unfortunately, Asser doesn't have anything about baking cakes um, at all. Uh, and that's uh, the story of King Alfred burning the cakes isn't something that is attested until the 11th century. Um, so we don't know if he was a baker or not uh, in terms of contemporary evidence. I mean that is very disappointing. I was going to. I was very gonna, I was going to. Yeah. I was going to grill you on that right now. So, <laughs> so, um, so. Uh, I mean, this is this is uh, by the by. I suppose well conversation. But so the, the baking cakes episode when he was supposedly stranded in the in the marshes in Somerset while the Vikings were rampaging all around, not not attested in his lifetime. No, I'm really sorry. <laughs> it's not. It's not until the 11th century. Uh, I think the earliest. Uh, version of that story of any sort is an 11th century anonymous hagiography um, of Saint Neot, uh, which which mentions this um, as part of that narrative. Um, but there is no, unfortunately no late 9th century evidence to suggest that King Alfred was a baker. Right. Uh, well, well Bake Off fans, that's uh, that's bad news. But uh, it's, it's, I'm sorry. Yeah. There we go. But but so broadly speaking, it portrays uh, uh, Asser's life of King Alfred portrays him in a in a positive light. That's that's what you're saying. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Yes. Uh, very. Uh, Asser was clearly a big fan of the person he was writing about, and I mean, it's interesting that Asser does, um, even though this is this is clear. Uh, panegyric. It's clear, clearly trying to praise. Oh, sorry, the king. what is panegyric? Oh, mean? sorry, praise, praise literature. Um, this is clearly praise literature. Um, but he does try and note some personal conflicts that Alfred deals with, um, and he talks strikingly about Alfred's illnesses. Um, he's someone who is has physical ailments, um, but he also talks about his own. Uh, personal conflicts with this and um, uh, and his carnal desires as well, it mentions. Um, the sense that this is this is the person, I think Asa is striving to, to, to get across that this is this is a person, this is a human, this is um, with their own personal sort of experiences and struggles. But it is overwhelmingly po positive. Yes. Yeah, so 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 it sounds um, quite as if it is quite a personal. Is it almost journalistic in its approach, or is that a, a completely anachronistic thing to say when we're talking about this sort of manuscript? I mean, what, what do you mean by journalistic? Uh, so, uh, right back at me. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, well, well, a journalist would look out for the for the personal element in a story, uh, wouldn't he? He or she. Yeah, that, yeah, and I think that there's definitely a sense of that. As I said, that the, there are, I mean, ch certain chapters of it are Asa is taking the information from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and it's just stating that this happened in this year. But then it does switches uh, its focus and its, its it, it changes tone at times to be surprisingly intimate. And, and so we do get an insight to him in being uh, emotionally invested and motivated in what he's doing as a ruler. Um, and uh, so we, we talked a little bit earlier about the fact that we don't have a surviving copy of, uh, of the original. Mm. Um, but has has this as the story that's uh, that's that's told in this life has that has that been popular ever since it, the 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 ninth tenth century when it was when when it first came down or is it uh, did it sort of die away and then come back? 
Well, I think this is this adds to um, why there have been questions about its authenticity because we don't have a huge number of medieval manuscripts of this text. It doesn't seem to be a text that had huge circulation. It didn't become a standard text that was read in classrooms. We know of certain later authors that seem to have known of it. We can tell that because of the information they contain in their own text, but also the phrasing that they use in their own texts. So that we know of certain moments in time uh, where where there are authors. Um, there's very recent evidence um, uncovered uh, by David Callender, Rebecca Tobbas, um, that points to uh, a Welsh poet in the uh, first half of the 10th century knowing this text. Then we fast forward to the later 10th century um, and uh, one individual, uh, Bert Firth of Ramsey, uh, seems to have known of it. Um, and then we move forward into the 11th century and I can think of other individual examples of authors who seem to have known of this. But it's not, there isn't a sense of it becoming a bestseller um, in medieval Britain. Um, so it's not a, a, of, a Geoffrey of Monmouth, Arthurian tales type thing? No, unfortunately not, no. Okay, now, so we talked there a fair bit about uh, this, this life of King Alfred, which, which is known about and which people have obviously been researching for a long time, and it's, it's an important uh, document uh, uh, with, with those reservations you just described about the life of King Alfred. Now, but, but, but speaking about your research um, uh, specifically that you've just been doing, um, you, you've, you've made some interesting observations, and it, uh, it, it, it requires us to understand charters um, because that's what, what, what you're uh, uh, referencing. So um, charters are another documentary source uh, that comes down to us from the, from the time of King Alfred and, and indeed earlier. Um, just tell us what a charter is and, uh, and, and how we should understand them. Our charters are amazing. Uh, they are um, a source of huge amounts of information for us um, about the history of, um, of early medieval England. Uh, so a charter is a document that records a donation of land, uh, very simply. And the vast majority of charters that have survived from the early medieval period are royal charters, otherwise known as royal diplomas, they're sometimes called. And these are recording donations by an individual king to an individual or an institution. Um, we have charters surviving from the seventh century all the way up to the 11th century and beyond. So this isn't something that's exclusive or unique to Alfred's reign, but Alfred, like um, the vast majority of his predecessors and successors as a king, uh, issued charters giving land to individuals within his kingdom. So the way you describe them, they that uh, you make them sound like they must be pretty dry documents. Uh, not 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 in the same vein as the life of King Alfred you just talked about. Uh, yeah, uh, at first glance, I would say. Um, I, I say there there are a type of material that um, once you give them time to speak to you, that they can they can tell you a huge amount of information, um, not only about that individual relationship between the king and the person they're giving the land to. Um, because they're also, uh, they normally contain a list of witnesses to the agreement. And these witnesses are confirming um, that, yes, this, this has happened. Um, it very much speaks to the culture of um, consensus and consent that surrounded early medieval English kingship, uh, particularly at royal assemblies. Um, and in those witness lists, we can therefore track who is there. Uh, we can identify people in their careers. 
And also in terms of the, the language of these documents, most of which are in Latin, particularly the royal ones. Um, the ones that aren't royal charters sometimes are written in Old English instead. Um, but they can tell us a huge amount, not only in terms of those those practical agreements that are being made between people, but also in terms of political aspirations and the ideologies of the people. How is the king being described in these charters? Uh, it can really it can tell us a huge amount about the conversations going on at the court and what what they aspired to be as rulers. Um, they, but uh, they, they at, at first glance, admittedly. <laughs> That, that we don't they don't have a lot they don't they often don't contain much narrative information um so it takes a bit a bit more digging down into them to get to the juicy stuff okay and you have been digging down into them and you have got to the juicy stuff so what so so sort of very briefly in layman's terms give us give us uh, a, a a sense of how what you've worked out about asa and 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 one of these charters specifically um so this is part of a, a wider project that i've been doing looking at Latin texts written uh, in England um, in the what we might call the long 10th century, so from the 9th to the 11th centuries. And I've been particularly interested in looking at the use of more unusual phrasing and vocabulary to see if we can uncover new connections between texts. And so that my, my research project hasn't been specifically in search of texts related to Asa. This has just been a sort of happy result of this, that I've identified one surviving charter that uh, has an unusually large number of phrases and pieces of vocabulary that are very idiosyncratic and, and otherwise we might assume can be found in the life of King Alfred. So, so in in uh, in your phrasing in your article, you talk about uh, lexical echoes, which I which I uh, is, is quite a it's quite a nice uh, turn of phrase there. So you're basically saying that you think Asa himself wrote one of these charters. In trying to consider all the possible scenarios, that is the one that uh, I I have landed on and think is the most likely situation here. I should say that this charter, the one this one particular charter wasn't issued by Alfred. It was issued after. So Alfred died in 899, and this charter was issued in 904. So it was issued by Alfred's successor and son, Edward the Elder. And yes, it contains, and and it's recording an exchange of lands between Edward the Elder and the Bishop of Winchester. Um, But it has all these echoes, as I said, lexical echoes of, of the life of King Alfred which at first I thought, okay, great, that's interesting. This might be evidence for someone having read the life of King Alfred really early on. Um, And any evidence of the reception of this text is is rare. Um, So I thought, woohoo, great. But then I looked into this further and very fortunate in that there are three other charters that were issued in 904 at the same place. Um, One might be from a, a, a different meeting, but three of them seem to have been produced for the same royal assembly. And what what was exciting for me is when looking at the witness lists, I saw that in the three other charters from 904 from this place, Asa was in the witness lists, but he wasn't in the witness list for this charter, which which is pretty weird. And so the explanation, I think, is that it's because he wasn't a witness for this document, it's because he was the person writing it. 
And is there anything particularly interesting or uh, unique about the charter itself or the contents of it? So another asset connection within it um, is that one of the parcels of land that have been exchanged within this agreement is at Banwell. And Banwell is a place that is named within the life of King Alfred as an estate that was given to Asa by King Alfred at an earlier time. Clearly by 904, this is in the hands. This Asa is no longer in possession of this because he's not mentioned as one of the people in this agreement. So we don't know at what, what point Asa may have relinquished this estate, but it adds to this sense of he may have had a vested interest in this agreement that was issued in 904. Okay, so if you're correct uh, that Asa had a hand in this in this charter, why should we care about that? Well, I suppose the headline is uh, it's doubling the corpus of texts written by Asa, who is one of the most famous authors from early medieval Britain. It tells us more about his activities and career, um, particularly after Alfred dies in 899. He's still around at Edward's court. And more importantly, I mean, we knew he was still around because he appears in the witness list for several charters. But this also tells us that he's actually writing Latin, probably under the patronage of the king. So it fleshes out our sense of, of, of Asa's relationship with Edward, his career after Alfred dies, potentially over, I mean, yes, he's writing in 893. We don't know if and when he actually finishes the life, but this is over 10 years later. Um, so this is a sustained relationship that he he's having with the West Saxon king. But more generally, one thing about charters uh, from early medieval England is that they are, for the most part, anonymous. They don't normally tell us who writes them. And this gives us a sense of not only identifying one known historic individual who wrote a charter, but also thinking about Asa and his status at this point in time. By 904, he is the Bishop of Sherborne. And Sherborne is one of the two historic sees of the Kingdom of Wessex. So this is one of the most significant, high-powered roles in the church within the West Saxon Kingdom. So it tells us, it's a hint at the involvement of bishops in the writing of charters. And I think more more profoundly potentially thinking about who is creating the voice of the king and the involvement of bishops and members of the church in this, potentially. Um, but then also thinking about Asa's status um, as a Welshman. Medieval Latin literature is a deeply international body of literature. I mean, particularly from England in the in the 10th and 11th centuries, the majority of, of known Latin authors who were writing at that point in time had not been born in England. This is a very international world. And I think this brings the charter corpus more firmly into that, getting that sense of this is a product of a, uh, a deeply internationally interconnected uh, world and, and, and cultural phenomenon. Um, now, Asa died, I think, in 909, AD, is that right? Uh, yes, um, 908 or 999. I think that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles says 909. Okay. One of those two years, probably so, 909. So is there any, uh, so you, you've done this research on this charter and you've been looking at charts more generally, as, as you mm. said. Is there any chance that you're going to identify Asa's hand in other charters? Um, is that possible? 
I don't think I'm going to find Asa, unfortunately, in any other charters because not with the same level of cert or prob- high probability that he wrote this. Um, the, the, we do have a charter that was written slightly later, um, uh, soon before he died, that, where he is the beneficiary of the charter. Um, and it's possible that he wrote that one. I don't think I'm going to find any more from Asa because I've... I, um, I'd like to think I've been pretty thorough in going through the corpus, um, uh, but I invite others to uh, see if they, they can find another one. But there is the potential for, for moving more for moving forward into the 10th century. Um, there is certainly a lot more work that can and should be done on this. Um, that, that there are certainly more discoveries to be to be made uh, within the charters. Are you are you going to uh, work out the identity of Athelstan A? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. Um, yeah, so Ath- Athelstan A, um, uh, for, for people less familiar with, with charters, um, so he's an anonymous author who had exclusive control and, and wrote uh, royal charters for King Athelstan um, for about seven years. Um, and we don't know who this person is. And there have been various suggestions, but we've yet to uncover the definitive piece of evidence that un- unveils who Athelstan A is. But he was a very exceptional, or she, um, in terms of the uh, literary ambitions of them. The, the Athelstan A's diplomas are very verbose, very wordy, uh, in quite an extreme way. Um, so I'd love to know who the, who the personality behind them was. Um, but But we shall see. <laughs> uh, Athelstan, of course, was uh, Alfred's grandson. And I should say, I'm making myself sound much more educated than I am. I only know uh, about Athelstan because I went to a talk by Michael Wood uh, last week where he talked about it. But it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it, to, to, to interrogate these charters and diplomas and, uh, and, and learn stuff from them. Um, so, so finally, Rob, does this shed any further light on the life of King Alfred uh, or on the personality of King Alfred? On the life of King Alfred as a text? As a um, text, yeah. I would like to think that this adds further to our certainty that this is a text of the late ninth century. And so we can be more, more, even more confident in, in using it as a source for exploring Alfred's life and his reign. And I mean, it's an extraordinary text that every time, pretty much every time I read it, I spot something new that I hadn't really noticed or thought about before. It's a great text for research and for teaching. And it's amazing where discussions with students can go because it's something I hadn't really thought about before. So I I, I would like to think that it's contributed to that sense. And in terms of uh, what what it tells us further about Alfred, I mean, we might think that more about what exactly those scholars like Asser were doing at Alfred's court during his lifetime. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't found in any of the charters that Alfred actually issued clear evidence that Asser wrote any of them. Um, But thinking about what their roles were within that world at the court, what were they doing on a day-to-day basis? I think this this discovery um, is something that, for me, confirms suspicions that, yes, this is the sort of activity they might be doing, that they might be writing these Latin charters I think they were probably also writing letters that were sent to international international correspondents in Latin, because uh, 
who had these skills? That's one of the questions, one of the issues for Alfred, that there were relatively few people with those levels of Latin literacy. And that's why he brought these scholars in, into his court in the first place. Um, so I think it, it, it adds flesh to that understanding of, of what they're doing in the 890s in particular. Okay, and, and finally, if any of our listeners are encouraged to go and uh, read a copy of the life of King Alfred, having listened to this conversation, um, is there a particular edition that is uh, is a good one to to go to? And how should you how should you sort of frame your reading of a document like that? How do you how should, how do you approach reading uh, a, 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 um, an early medieval document of that nature? Well, in terms of the Latin text, um, the the edition was produced in 1904, which by um, W. H. Stevenson, which remains the edition for looking at the Latin of it, because basically he did such a good job um, of producing it. In terms of translations, um, there is the Penguin Classics translation by Michael Lappage and Simon Keynes, which is the the one that uh, is the standard one to look at. Um, So it's very, very accessible. I'm sure there are lots of secondhand copies um, and even the the new copy um, is, is pretty inexpensive. So yeah, I strongly encourage people to go go and have a look uh, at at the translation and see what they make of it themselves. Because I think there's it, it, it's, it's such a remarkable text, and um, each person I think will have their own kind of take something uh, individual away from it. That was Dr. Robert Gallagher of the Centre for Medieval and Early Modern Studies at the University of Kent. And as I mentioned earlier. If you're into early medieval history and you want to find out more about the Vikings, be sure to check out our Vikings-themed week on historyextra.com. You can find all of the material on that at historyextra.com forward slash Vikings. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Zoe Playden will be exploring the story of a top-secret legal case that transformed the experiences of transgender people. Thank you.